This is Richard Pothig, continuing on the sidewalks of New York, my autobiography. This is chapter 25, starting a new chapter. Jim McNaughton and I came back from our Adirondack summer refreshed and ready for the home stretch toward graduation. The time in the Adirondacks had been both restoring and reassuring. Restoring in the opportunity to change one's pace from the pressures of seminary life and reassuring in the knowledge that the seminary had prepared us well for our weekly task of preaching and conducting worship. The mountains were an ideal place to regain a larger perspective on life. The open air, the sky with its varying cloud formations, the sudden rains which seemed to come out of nowhere, the vast expense of uninhabited mountains, the quietness, and the cleansing quality of daily physical labor. All these stood in contrast to the harried and cluttered life of the city. I had drawn my energy from the city and was indebted to the broad humanity in which I had been woven. But during the summer I came to realize that rarely in my 26 years had I ever experienced such solitude. The summer of 1950 in a Pittsburgh steel mill helped me locate my specific calling. The summer of 1951 had revealed the importance of seeing life in all its wholeness. When Jim and I returned to Union in September, we returned to responsibilities. Now that Bill Carey was president of the student body, we were enlisted in the seminary programs. Jim and I were among those seniors who had the responsibility to assist the incoming junior class and other master degree students in getting acquainted with Union Seminary and one another. Our first duty was to take groups of incoming students on round robins to faculty homes. This was a delightful job. Not only did we get acquainted with the new students, but it gave us an entree into the faculty residences. We had a high regard for the Union faculty, and any chance to meet them in a setting other than the classroom was a welcome opportunity. The round robins took place several nights in the middle of September before classes got underway. Both Jim and I had about six people in our groups. On the first evening, as we were getting our assignments of students, I took note of a particularly attractive young woman in Jim's group. When we got back to our room at night, I asked Jim her name. You're interested? He responded. Sure, how come you get all the good-looking women? I know, you've been working with Mary Muir, the secretary of the dean's office. That's how, isn't it? You know, I think she's the same woman I spotted this morning in chapel. She was wearing a brown suede hat. She really stood out among the others. You don't miss a trick, Jim said. I think her name is Eunice. Yeah, you're here. Here it is, Eunice Blanchard. She's from Dayton, Ohio, a graduate of DePauw University. Where's she living? On campus? I think she's at the James Foundation. The James Foundation was a mansion on 67th Off Park Avenue, which housed women students from Union. That sounds great. What do you say that after we finish the round robins tonight, we drive her back to James Foundation? We can stop off at the Gay Vienna on the way back. Jim had been with me to the Gay Vienna. It was a family restaurant on 2nd Avenue in Yorkville. I had introduced some of my Union Seminary friends to the Gay Vienna. It had become a haunt for many Union students. One of the Gay Vienna's main attractions was the convivial zither player. You're not wasting any time, Jim retorted. Hey, remember we're seniors. This is our last year before the cold, cruel, impersonal world closes in around us. 
May I also remind you that one of Walt Davidson's uh, professor of practical theology, one of his principles is that seminary graduates should not start dating all the eligible women in their first parish. You shouldn't have waited so long, said Jim. Hey, I wasn't ready to get serious. I feel the time has come. Anyway, I need to have some assurance so I can get my mind on my BD thesis, I jested. Anything from my roommate, meet me outside Hastings around 10. My last faculty visit will be in Knox Hall. I'll invite Mary to come along tonight. Fortunately, Jim had his car in New York. Jim parked his car on the street outside the seminary. Parking on the west side in the early 1950s was not as nerve-wracking as it became in the 1960s. Jim used the car for his fieldwork in Brooklyn, where he was working at the United Church at Bay Ridge, a congregation with a Presbyterian affiliation. Jim got along well with John Paul Jones, the minister who had persuaded him to stay for all his three years of seminary. The Bay Ridge area of Brooklyn had a German ethnic population. I completed my last round robin in McGifford just before 10 o'clock. I was at the Hastings just outside as Jim was leaving Knox Hall. Knox and Hastings were adjacent buildings on the Union Quadrangle. In his affable style, Jim glided right into introductions. Oh, here's my roommate. This is Dick Pothig. You must have finished early, he asked. Everyone in the group introduced themselves. I was, of course, interested in one particular young woman. Her friendliness was encouraging. We fell into conversation about the visits to faculty apartments. I asked Eunice where she was living at Union. She told me at the James Foundation. I told her while that was inconvenient, it was one of the most elegant arrangements that Union provided. As the group began to disperse, I made my suggestion to Jim. It's late, Jim. Why don't we drive Eunice down to the James Foundation? We could stop off for New Yorkville on the way. I would appreciate that, Eunice said. The buses don't run as regularly this late at night. We piled into Jim's car and headed across town to the east side. I had suggested that we stop off in Yorkville. Both Eunice and Mary Muir, Jim's date, were delighted to get to see another part of town. We got to the gay Vienna about 10.30. We entered the door to the dining section and went to the back tables to be close to the entertainment. Like most German family restaurants, it was divided by a wall. On one side was the bar, and on the other side were tables for dining. The back section had a small raised platform for the zither player. Eunice looked over at the bar, which from the back section was in clear view. Do they also serve food this late? Sure, I said, this is a restaurant. How about some apple strudel? They have great apple strudel and some coffee. Both Mary and Eunice chimed in, that sounds good. We'll have two apple strudels and two coffees, and we'll have two dark beers, I told the waiter. The zither player resumed his place and began his medley of German songs and Austrian waltzes. The strains of the zither music filled the air. Tensions in the room melted away. Conversation seemed to flow with the sounds of the music. We talked about the places we were from, about our coursework at Union, and our denominational affiliation. Mary Muir was the Episcopalian among us. It was a warm and a very cordial atmosphere. As we left the gay Vienna, Eunice said, This is a neat place. Mary agreed. We drove Eunice to the James Foundation and headed back to Union well past midnight. After we dropped Mary Muir off at her apartment, I told Jim, I'm really interested. You better move quick if you want to get your BD thesis out of the way. 
I'm sure that there will be someone else moving if you don't. I'll catch her after chapel tomorrow and have lunch with her. James' chapel was crowded for Friday morning worship. I sat in the balcony for a clearer view of the congregation. There were many heads to sort out. When the service ended, I caught a glimpse of the brown suede hat. I recognized the hat from the day before. I made my way quickly down the balcony stairs and caught up with Eunice as she was leaving the chapel. Hi! Hope we didn't keep you out too late last night. No, it was a nice evening. I enjoyed the gay Vienna, she said. We went off to the refectory where I pursued my now deepening interest in this young woman. I knew that I have to be intent in my attentions. We made plans to see one another again for Sunday worship. I suggested that we attend First Presbyterian Church in the village. John Mellon was the preacher there. He was the closest thing we had in New York City to a Niburian preacher. I picked Eunice up on Sunday morning at the James Foundation. We took the IRT down to the village. John Mellon was as good as usual. He was a thoughtful preacher. He provided an ample opening for us to discuss theology and the prevailing climate at Union. We walked over to the Washington Square to catch the flavor of Greenwich Village. Then I took Eunice to the Jumble Shop for lunch. It was a restaurant which captured the spirit of the village. She asked me about life in New York. This unwound me. It didn't take much for me to get to talk about New York. I reflected on particular memories of the places I knew in the city. The village was closely connected to my student days, especially some of my more radical associations. I wasn't sure how all of this was going over, but I was never reticent about identifying my political point of view. If anyone had qualms about my politics, it was better to find out early. None of this seemed to faze Eunice. She seemed genuinely interested. When she heard that I had graduated from Worcester, she expressed particular delight. I missed going there by a whisker. My mother pressed Worcester on me. She was a Worcester graduate. But I had my own mind and chose to pour over Worcester to my mother's despair. My father attended Worcester for two years. That's where they met. The Worcester connection provided a common bond to our relationship. We had a good afternoon. As I departed from the James Foundation, we agreed that we would see one another during the week. Classes began the next day, and I had to get to my BD thesis topic at the beginning of the semester. This was not difficult, since I had already decided what I was going to write on. A Christian doctrine of work for a modern technological society. I also had to tie down a fieldwork position before we got too far into the academic year. I had heard about a student hospital chaplain's position from Lyman Hartley, a middle student at Union. Lyman had been a year behind me at Worcester. His father was the head chaplain at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in Washington Heights. I made arrangements for an interview, and I immediately hit it off with Lyman Hartley Sr. This was an area of ministry in which I had very little knowledge. I had spent two years of field work in local congregations. The past summer in the Adirondack Lodger Parish had added to that experience. I needed to explore a new field. Hospital chaplaincy was in its infancy. It was to become, in the next decade, a requirement of seminary education. It came to be called pastoral clinical education. It gave rise to a whole new profession among ministers, the pastoral counselor. In the fall of 1951, I decided to take on the job of student chaplain as a challenge to my parochial interests. 
Union had taken the lead in providing courses in counseling. We had several good professors in the area of pastoral counseling. I was especially drawn to David Roberts, who taught the psychotherapy courses. He was one of the more able theologians in the seminary. David Roberts was a sensitive human being with a great rapport with his students. His classes were alive with incisive biblical reflections into human nature. Although Roberts was a relatively young man, he was to die soon after I graduated from Union. All the time I was getting my BD thesis and my field work underway, my mind was continually on Eunice. I was deeply attracted to her. She had classes over at Teachers College, along with her courses at Union. I had to work hard to meet her for lunch or for supper. After our lunches, we took walks in Riverside Park along the parkway behind Union Seminary. Fall is the most pleasant and colorful season in New York. The fall of 1951 was spectacular. The trees along the Hudson River were in all their glory. The parkway was awash in yellows and reds and oranges and chestnut browns. And our conversations took on the warmth of the scenery around us. We easily moved into talking about family and future. We glided into that conversation like we were of the same mind, thinking the same thoughts. It was a great feeling a feeling I had never had before. What do you think is the ideal number of, a, of children in a family, I asked Eunice. I already knew the number I wanted, four, maybe five. I'd like to have five children, Eunice said. I smiled in great delight. How'd you guess? That's close to my number. Our conversations began to anticipate each other. In a short time, I felt I had grown close to her. I hoped that she felt the same toward me. I realized that we had known one another for less than a month. That did not matter. As short as the time had been, I knew she was the person I most wanted to be with. I could not put off the moment any longer. In early October, on one of our walks, I told her of my feelings, which by now were obvious. She responded with warmth and deep affection. I asked her if she were ready to make a decision about marriage. She said she was. She would marry me. It was a tremendous moment. The beginning of a new chapter in my life. On Columbus Day, which was a holiday in New York City, I made an appointment at a diamond merchant on 57th Street on the east side. He was the father of the wife of a Union seminarian. I met Eunice at the James Foundation, and we walked down to 57th Street. It was a glorious fall day. The streets and the sidewalks of New York had never seemed lighter under my feet. The diamond merchant greeted us with congratulations. He brought out a tray of diamonds. We looked over many, and finally Eunice chose one which pleased her. We agreed on a setting. We walked over to a nearby Chinese restaurant on Lexington Avenue. It was on the second floor, looking out on the busy street below. We watched the people and the traffic of New York. We had known one another for a month and had made a decision to last a lifetime. 